0: With Dr. Good afternoon. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadid Holakwi, and I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamra. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook. Get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Let's get to the books of the week. The book of the week for this week is Soul Boom by Rain Wilson. Soul Boom Why We Need a Spiritual Revolution. Uh, Rain Wilson is a well-known actor, most known for his role as Dwight Schutt on the popular show, The Office. I look forward to reading his book and discussing it with you next week. The book of the week from last week that I'll be talking about today is How Do We Know Ourselves by David G. Myers. How Do We Know Ourselves, Curiosities and Marvels of a Human Mind? Um, and David Myers is a professor of psychology, but he's also written many uh, books and essays, actually he's known for his textbooks, one of the more popular textbooks in psychology, um, and in this book he, and I think it's 40, short chapters discusses different topics related to the field of psychology, um, looking at different research that even some of it he's done himself, but others have done. And actually I didn't realize it when I was doing the books back-to-back, but i um, I discussed Paul Bloom's book, Psych, on the last show, and there was a lot of similarities because he was going through different uh, concepts and ideas in the field of psychology. So it's interesting to see some of the same themes come up, although sometimes they discuss them in different ways or had different conclusions, and that itself is one of the issues in the field of psychology itself is that some things that we think are clear findings, some might dispute, I mentioned it in the last book, um, that there is a replication crisis, and we're also, uh, this was discussed in this book as well, that there is a replication crisis, this uh, concept that many of the popular psychology studies that were done in uh, the earlier decades of social psychology research in particular have not been replicated, or there has been challenges in replicating them, which then brings to mind the issue of whether those were real findings or not, or whether um, what was determined based on those studies is things we should believe. And he used the term in this book, David Myers, zombie ideas or zombie something like that, which is basically these ideas that don't die. And I thought that was a a good way, kind of a funny way of putting it, but one that unfortunately is very pervasive. Uh, At times, things get repeated so many times and we hear them from so many different people that we think it's a truth when in fact it might not be. And I think psychology is actually one of the fields that unfortunately experiences the most this concept or this uh, issue. For example, I'll hear people talk about um, the reptile brain and in a way that's very matter-of-fact, but really there isn't this concept of a reptile brain like a reptilian brain, mammalian brain, the human brain. Um, It's a way of possibly thinking about different aspects of the brain, but it doesn't reflect this reality that Reptiles only have some aspects of the brain or some parts of the brain, and then mammals have some, and then humans have some. Um, That's really not how it works. So uh, as I was reading the book, and just because I'd finished Paul Bloom's book recently, I saw that even between them, there was at times some discrepancies in how things were discussed, which I think is an important issue that we have to reconcile in the field of psychology. Now, that being said, in any field, physics even, which might seem like a more hard science, there will be disagreements about things. So it's not that everyone agrees on all the facts and all the theories exactly in the same way. There will always be some disc- discrepancies, so that is to be expected in any field. Um, the, the title of the book, How Do We Know Ourselves? I really uh, liked the title that actually what drew me in. And I thought the book would be more focused on this one theme. It, it did come up. Um, but it was just parts of the book. And the first section was all about um, knowing ourselves more um, or who am I was the first uh, section. And there were some interesting themes here Again, some I saw in the previous book, but some definitely were not there. Things related to attention and how uh, we can focus on only a certain number of things at any given time. And because of that, uh, there's a chapter he had about the unconscious and this sense that we have one brain, but two minds, or do we have one brain and two minds? And this theme I've discussed on the show many times before, because I think it's a, a interesting one when people can think of, well, what is the unconscious? Do we have an unconscious? And also the ways that we think about the unconscious. I often will say that I think the unconscious needs a rebranding, meaning that the ways that we think about it tend to make it something dark and hidden, something that um, reflects the worst part of us. And this is likely a remnant of Freud, who was one of the biggest contributors to this concept of an unconscious, and one of the earliest contributors of this concept. And much of what he wrote about was this dark side that the, the unconscious is where these sexual desires and unexpressed desires laid, or... Issues that we had, complexes were there, and so it was all the bad stuff. And so the unconscious will include these aspects of us, but it's just everything that is not in our awareness at any given time. So, an analogy would be something like a library where at any given time I might have one book in my hand that I'm reading, and there are a whole host of other books uh, in that library. And of course, some of them might be dark or bad, but there's just everything is in there. And so at any given time, I'm only aware of some things, but almost everything else I am not aware of. And actually, that's a good thing, because if I could only hold in my brain everything I could be conscious of, I would be very limited compared to what as human beings and even other animals that as a human being, I can have the capacity of having in my brain and in my disposal when the time comes that is actually a good thing so the unconscious is something wonderful something great something that we use all the time every single day it is out of our awareness when we're using it or we might not be aware of it or can become aware of it but it's all the time operating and often it's operating in ways that allows us to live for example as I'm sitting here my breathing is controlled by parts of my brain or the ways I'm sitting, I'm not consciously thinking of until now what I mentioned, and now I'm more conscious of it, and it's brought to my attention, and my awareness. Um, He also does get into ways that we think we know what we don't know, and that's even related to the unconscious, the sense that we don't know so much about even ourselves, which I might talk about later on the show. Um, He had a chapter I liked, it was called We Knew It All Along, and in this chapter he talks about... A few different concepts, but including the hindsight bias. And so the hindsight bias is our tendency to, after the fact, think that something that happened was inevitable. Well, of course it happened this way. I could have told you that. Whereas if we actually had to predict something now happening in a similar vein, it won't be so easy, or we won't be able to do that. Uh, He quotes the Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard, who said life is lived forwards, but understood backwards? So, uh, anytime we look back on something, we can understand how something unfolded. And sometimes this gives it this sense of destiny, or it had to go that way. But that is not not at all the case. And so, I'll get into some other um, ways that this might show up. But he also talks about psychology findings and how often people say, "Well, of course, that's the truth." I mean, you didn't have to do a whole research study to figure that out. Uh, But he shows that if you give people opposing findings, they'll sometimes be able to justify either one of those. And that's sometimes the case in psychology studies, where we could justify two opposite outcomes. Both of them can make sense in a way. So uh, he he cites an example of saying, social psychologists have found that we are most attracted to people whose traits are similar to our own. Or we are most attracted to people whose traits differ from our own, like opposites attract. And what they find is that if you give people either one of these quote-unquote findings, I say that because they both are not true, people will find reasons to justify and it will seem obvious. Well, of course, yeah, people get excited by people who are different from them. So, yeah, opposites attract. Or people like people who are similar to them. So, of course, that's going to be true. And so we see that opposite findings are uh, things that both people or people might be able to believe or justify, but that's because of his hindsight bias that after the fact things seem obvious. This also relates to things like when a tragedy happens, and sometimes it could seem obvious that we should have been able to predict it. He talks about here 9/11, September 11 uh, attacks in the United States, where there were some warning signs and. I don't know the full history to know if really those warning signs were more blatant and should have um, captured the attention of the intelligence, and that's you know, a whole topic of its own. But nonetheless, he cites how there are many different um, warnings or issues that come up. Uh, thousands of them were coming up. There wasn't just when we look back, we find the three that match what actually happened. Let's say and think, well, you obviously should have known what was going to happen. But when it's three in a um, of 20,000, we can see that it's not so easy to think that just because there was some warning that it could have easily been predicted. This same thing happens when people make threats. So someone might say, oh, I'm going to you know, kill you or I'm going to beat you up or I'm going to do this or that. It's tough to know which ones we should take seriously. In hindsight, it seems very obvious. Well, this person clearly showed that they were angry or they clearly showed They wanted to take some action, but we will often forget all the other thousands of people who might also have made a similar threat, but nothing ended up happening. So that could be tough. So that's one effect of the hindsight bias that after the fact, things seem inevitable when it came to predicting them, though, we probably wouldn't have that same level of success. Now, I will say here, when I talk about suicide, I will often share that my Thinking is that if someone does make a threat of suicide, of course, many more people make the threats than actually take action. But I would always encourage people to take it seriously because if they are telling the truth, you might be saving their life. And if not, you will get to connect with them or at least see what it is that they're going through. And you actually will take away, if they're using this some way of, let's say, getting your attention, to use that in the future to get attention by actually making there be some consequences. So for example, if they're threatening to do something, you can call 911 and then they'll see that it's not something that they can just say if they're saying it in the empty way. So um, that's one that I do encourage families to take seriously because of how often I see people try to ignore because of the difficulty of facing the possible reality of how distressed their family member is doing, people will often ignore suicide threats or suggestions, and that's something that I always try to discourage because, sadly, often we won't know until it's too late that it was serious. Um, but as I was saying, that chapter was on the hindsight bias and something that encourages a theme that came up a few different times in the book, which was intellectual humility and humility in general. Um, this sense that we like to think that we know more than we know, that we are more confident than we think we are that we uh, understand things better than we do, and that we are right about things, especially things that maybe are not clear even what right means, but we'd like to think that. And so having a healthy dose of intellectual humility can be really helpful in, in allowing us to face the world in a more realistic way. Our overconfidence will get us in trouble a lot of times. And speaking of overconfidence, something that was in the Paul Bloom book, but also in this one, is our tendency towards overconfidence. So, for example, if you ask people, are you better than average at driving, let's say, or different characteristics, we find that an overwhelming majority of people will say that they are better than average, or even put themselves in the top 10% or 5%. It will be overrepresented, meaning that, as a whole, we're not very good at judging ourselves when it comes to different characteristics. Uh, And this is even true. He was talking about how people who have gone into an accident, they are very good at justifying why they got into their accident. Oh, the person came out of nowhere or, you know, um, something happened, but I'm actually overall a a really good driver. And so we're really good at justifying why what we did wasn't so bad when it's bad and figuring out why what we did was so good when it is good. Um, But again, this intellectual humility makes us recognize this tendency. And what's funny is that we have all these biases towards ourselves and included in that is the bias to be blind to this bias. So most of us, even me reading the book or you listening to me now, might think, oh, that's interesting how other people might have this bias of being overconfident. But that's not me. I'm accurately assessing myself. But this itself is part of this overconfidence bias that we think we're better than average, even when it comes to being humble or having this humility. I thought that was interesting. Uh, We are at a commercial break. I do want to discuss the book a bit further. So after the break, I'll continue with the discussion on How Do We Know Ourselves by David G. Myers. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Continuing the discussion on the book, How Do We Know Ourselves by David G. Myers. During the break, I um, remembered one aspect of the hindsight bias that I was thinking about when it comes to myself as a therapist and the ways we will at times try to explain why someone is the way that they are, why their personality is a certain way, um, and realizing that at times we might be able to find a justification for any type of result that might come about. So, let me give you an example. someone is themselves, um, or let's say they themselves are a very controlling uh, set of parents, mother and father are very controlling. And if they are controlling themselves, we'll say, well, of course, see, your parents were controlling, you were in that environment, and you learned to live that way. Or if they were very out of control, we might say, oh, see, it's obvious your parents were so controlling, and you saw that that was bad, and you went to this other extreme. Now, even as I'm saying that, I can actually understand both explanations, and they might have something to them. The thing we have to be careful about is when we think we can easily predict something, because if your prediction can uh, predict either outcome, then it's not really much of a theory or it's not predicting much. So if I say, if you do this, you're going to get better, or if you do this, you're going to get worse. If you're sick, let's say, I'm not really giving you much of a medicine, I'm just and you the darkness. So I did reflect on that, the hindsight bias, how at times it can be very easy to come up with a justification that makes sense to us. And this is, I think, one of the gifts and curses that we have with our intellect is that we can do this. Um, we can come up with reasons to justify or first explain anything, but we also come up with really good reasons to justify anything we do or don't do, uh, a kind of motivated reasoning that because I want it to be this way, I will find a reason that makes sense. And this is why at times I kind of shudder when people say, oh, this is rational or it's not rational, because that word rational can mean lots of things. And we're very good at rationalizing things that we do. Um, Very strongly, this shows with individuals dealing with addiction, where they can be very good at coming up with reasons why to use whatever substance or whatever the behavior is that they are addicted to. We're very good at coming up with reasons why it might make sense. Well, you know, it's good to start on a Monday fresh anyway, and I, I think I should do that. Or I want to get it all out of my system. I still have some left, and if I use it and I don't know it's gone, then I can, you know, really take care of myself. And, of course, addiction is one very blatant way where it might show up, but we do it all the time in what might seem like smaller ways, justifying you know, let's say, oh, you know, I I should study, but I'm really tired anyway, and I probably won't make sense of what I'm reading now, so I should start tomorrow. Um, Putting off something that's uncomfortable to the future is one of the uh, best ways that we're good at tricking ourselves to avoid some kind of pain that might be actually good for us. We're very good at that, and so I recognize that uh, as a therapist, This hindsight bias, being mindful of that, that I might find ways to justify whatever I'm believing or thinking or seeing that I think makes sense, but maybe it's just a way of trying to make it make sense to myself or make me think I understood what was going on. Speaking on personality, one of the major um, debates or issues that comes up when we're looking at Any psychological factor from mental illness to personality, people say, well, is it genetic or how much is it genetic? I get that question a lot. Is anxiety genetic? Is autism genetic? And the answer is usually, um, is it genetic or is it nature or nurture? The answer is yes, because virtually any type of characteristic we have, any mental illness, we have any trait that we see has a genetic component to it but it also will have um, a component that will be affected by the environment. When it comes to mental illness, sometimes there's a, uh, a way of categorizing this or describing this called the diathesis stress model. And the diathesis means like a predisposition, and then the stress means having a particularly stressful environment or the type of environment that might make it more likely for this mental illness to come about. So, for example, there's no... Schizophrenia gene, um, to begin with, it's not going to be one gene with almost any type of mental illness or characteristic, like a personality trait, it's related to many different genes. Um, So on top of that, there isn't just a schizophrenia gene because it's many uh, genetic components that will be involved. But on top of that, there isn't a gene that if you have it, you will definitely have schizophrenia. At least that's uh, the understanding we have. It's a certain predisposition, but then a certain environment that will make it likely for that um, disease to show up, just like you might have genetics that make you more predisposed to high blood pressure, but also what you do in your life and the choices that you make and the behaviors you make and don't make will affect how likely you are to uh, have high blood pressure or not. So in looking at personality and in both the Paul Bloom book, that I discussed on Monday's show, and in this book, um, David Myers uh, quoted a similar statistic when it comes to looking at our personalities, which is that roughly 50% of it is determined by our gene, meaning that no matter what you do, about 50% of it will be determined based on your genetic makeup. And so they cite things like looking at different studies of twins, for example, identical twins who are raised in two different homes, that they're separated at birth or near birth, um, and seeing how they develop, and they find that they're more likely to be similar genetically to their birth parents, for for example, than they are to the homes that they lived in and more likely to be similar to each other, even if they were raised in different environments. Now, these things even, you know, 50%, it's based on many different studies. What that exactly looks like or means um, is is something that to me is not even clear when I try to think about it, but it does give you some sense of that. But that does also still mean 50% of it is related to the environment. So that still is a whole lot. And maybe I'm, I'm using some motivated reasoning here to explain why it does matter what we do as parents or as a psychologist helping parents and how they, they deal with their kids. Um, and again, as I was saying before, it's both. It's not just the environment is going to matter only or that the uh, genes will matter. Um, and he talks about in the book how parents who have multiple children will really attest to this sense that there is definitely something within each child that is there before they are born, uh, meaning that they already have some level of their personality or characteristics that STEM. And I think that's very much true. As a psychologist working with families with multiple kids, you see this where the parents will, of course, be the same two parents. And, yes, the environment is not exactly the same, Many factors when you have one kid versus two, also the time and things that change. But nonetheless, parents will at times say, I did the same thing with this child that I did with the other one, but they turned out so different. Um, And so, definitely, parents can feel from a very young age some parts of their child's character that were there from birth and that they didn't help bring about, they were just there. And this is to me another reminder of why we shouldn't try to force our kids to be a certain way, or think they have to um, meet some kind of standard ideal that we have, but more than anything, help them grow into their potential. The analogy I like is considering your child like a seed, and you've been given this seed, and you don't know exactly what kind of plant it's supposed to grow into, uh, but you do everything you can to give it the best environment and nurturing to grow to its full potential. So is it going to be a small plant, a big plant? a flower, a tree, that you don't know. All you're trying to do is to help it grow to its full potential and also not think, well, I want it to be colorful, so I'm gonna color it this way, or I want it to be taller because tall is good and start stretching it. That will actually hurt the plant. And so often I see parents doing this with their kids. For example, oh no, it's good to be extroverted and to be a public speaker, so I wanna encourage my child or force them to go talk to everyone or to talk to people. And this actually might hurt a child who is more naturally introverted and it can actually be quite fine that way, uh, making them feel that they're wrong for being the way that they are. So um, that 50% exactly what that means as far as how it shows up in life, I think it's a bit hard to to conceptualize for me what that would look like. But as is the case uh, with most things, it shows that it's actually almost 50-50 of what is the genetic side uh, but then you still have that 50% of what you're doing with your child or their environment will affect them. And as is always the case, whatever is in our control, we want to do the 100% of that. So if it's 50%, let's try to do the 100% best we can or as close as we can give them that best environment, and then um, the genetic part is going to be out of our hands. Um, there's also some interesting chapters looking at, for example, phones. And I know this is such a in a way stereotypical thing of like phones being talked about, but I did like how he discussed this tendency we have to uh, do things like subbing, for example, which is not being using your phone that are, that happens in relationships. And I've worked with many couples where this does come up, this um, sense that you're ignoring me and you're on your phone all your time, all the time, or even in a conversation, you go to your phone. And so um, I do think it's, something that we all want to be more mindful of because we are so drawn to our phones, really. um, Our phones are something that we are not fully equipped, I think, to deal with from a mental and emotional standpoint, having something at our disposal that is so easy to distract us, so easily gives us a type of stimulation that we are actually not very good at managing that unless we're becoming more conscious of it. Uh, so that I thought was an interesting chapter. He also had one about death. Uh, the title was really good. Death is terrifying to contemplate, except for those who are dying. And so um, I've talked in recent years, especially more about death and death anxiety. Uh, in this chapter, though, he talks about how we do have this, this fear of death. Of course, that's just natural as a human, as a any kind of a biological being that we would have this fear of death or we try to avoid death. But he talks about how when people imagine dying or what it's going to be like, for example, asking people who have terminal cancer or those who are on death row, when they ask people who are not in those situations to imagine what it would be like and to write, for example, a paragraph based on what they're feeling, most people would think that it's far worse than those people actually in those situations. So uh, people who were let's say, imagining that they were dying of cancer would write these very somber messages that they were so sad and they couldn't believe it and heartbroken, whereas the people who were actually in those circumstances, I'm sure they were sad as well, but they were talking more about how grateful they were for what they experienced and um, the love they felt with others and the support they had for what they were going through and how that often left them with no regrets. So I thought that was an interesting one we are often quite bad at anticipating what we all feel. I think it's um, Daniel Gilbert's concept originally of uh, affective forecasting, that we think we'll know what we'd feel like. Oh, if this happens, I'm going to feel so good. Or if that happens, I would feel so bad. And we are often so wrong about that. And unfortunately, that could lead us to do the wrong things, avoid the wrong thing, because we think we know how we're going to feel, and it turns out, we won't. So for example, if I get this job, then everything is going to be okay, or I'm going to be happy, or if I change in this way, or if this change happens in my life, I'm going to feel a certain way. And then people get there, and they often see that that's not the case. And so the same thing with death. We might be fearing it so much, but it might be that once we're closer to it, we actually aren't so afraid. And even um, when they look at research of well-being, they find that although we have these assumptions of old pe- people being miserable and grumpy, it actually doesn't appear to be the case, that with older age, well-being doesn't seem to, to decrease. Actually, it starts to increase after a period in midlife where it might go a little bit down. So maybe death is not so scary. As he says, death is terrifying to contemplate except for those who are dying. So I, I enjoyed that chapter as well. And so, as I mentioned, the book is this um, set of, short essays, chapters, about 40, and it's interesting because I read another book like this that was similar to what I think I'd like to write myself in writing a book, and I've been working on a bit um, many different short chapters related to different themes or ideas, Uh, and so I did enjoy reading this book, and as I was reading it, I'm often reflecting on various things, obviously what I'm learning from it, what I agree with, what I disagree with, but also just the format of this book I enjoyed um, because it has these different short chapters. So even if you don't like one you're in, you're going to pretty soon get to the next one anyway. Um, But I did enjoy most of the chapters and I think you would too, if you'd like to check it out. Again, the book is How Do We Know Ourselves? Curiosities and Marvels of the Human Mind by David G. Myers. Let's go to a commercial break. We'll be right back. back. Uh, I was discussing the book How Do We Know Ourselves by David G. Myers, and I uh, actually didn't know it was going to be these 40 essays and thought the whole focus was going to be on this topic of how do you know ourselves, and there was definitely some of that, the first section in particular, and I guess all of it in a way was related to different ways that we think, um, ways that we see things, ways that we justify things, ways that we divide ourselves and even bring ourselves together. Uh, But I want to actually talk a bit about this uh, theme or this topic, how do we know ourselves? Because I I do find it quite fascinating. Maybe that doesn't come as a surprise being that I'm a psychologist and do therapy with individuals, helping them better understand themselves. But what I find uh, fascinating about this topic of how do we know ourselves is that we tend to think or just assume that we know ourselves quite well. Because, well, I am me, uh, but that doesn't actually mean I know myself very well at all. There's no guarantee or just assumption that because I am me experiencing my life, I actually really know myself well or know myself in a deep way. Uh, to begin with, research looking at even how people feel at any given moment has found that many people, I don't remember the exact numbers, but cannot identify what they are feeling in any given moment. So you ask them, how do you feel? And they say, I don't know. And of course, even if people say they do know, doesn't mean uh, they're accurately assessing that. But many people don't know. And this actually comes up in therapy and at times I'll ask them, how do you feel? And they say, I don't know. And so as a joke, I might say something like, well, who should we ask? Because it's interesting that they themselves, who are the one experiencing themselves, don't know what they are actually feeling. So we see that at any given moment, we are not really aware of much. It just goes back to this idea of a few things, the unconscious, but also just how connected we are to ourselves, that there's so much that we are unaware of when it comes to us. Me, myself, you would think I know everything about me, but I actually don't. An analogy came to me today thinking of this that even though I am me, it doesn't mean I know myself well, is just like there's a home or apartment that you live in, that is your home, that is your apartment, but it doesn't mean you know it very well, meaning that maybe there's rooms that you haven't really gone into or gone into much, maybe that's a bit extreme, or maybe your house is that big, good for you, Um, or you haven't seen every room. But also things like, do you know the depth of it? Let's say the plumbing and pipes or what's inside the walls or the foundation of it. You probably don't know a lot of those things. Or people will differ in how much they know in those details about their own home. So even though it's your home and I say, okay, well, this is your house. You know it. It doesn't actually mean you do. Someone else might come into your house and be able to point something out that you didn't know about, that you didn't recognize, or some issue that you didn't know or recognize. And so we are the same way with ourselves. Even though I am me, there's so much that is going on within me that is out of my awareness, that if I just assume I know everything, I'll stop trying to understand myself better. So, you know, the title of the book, How Do We Know Ourselves, there's many ways we reflect. And one of the ways we can know ourselves better or the first step is to want to know ourselves better and to self-reflect, to understand ourselves more and more. Um, Even things like journaling, people will go back and read their own journal or diary and sometimes we get very surprised of what we were feeling at that moment or how we were so upset about something or how we were so down in the dumps or felt like life was hopeless and now we don't feel anything like that. We could actually get surprised. But having those reminders can be good to get us to see, oh, that's, that's part of me too, or that's part of who I was or what I experienced at that moment. Maybe it can even come back. So first we have to, like anything that we want to understand or know, turn our attention towards it. And so in this sense, it's kind of an interesting thing. We're turning our attention towards ourselves, but also trying to turn our attention towards the things that are out of our attention or out of our consciousness, but to try to make them conscious. Uh, One way to do this would be to physically connect with yourself more, get more in touch with your physical body and sensations. Most of us would benefit from being more mindful, more connected to our body. How am I feeling physically? Scanning the body, are there areas that feel painful or uncomfortable that might need me to pay attention to in different ways or make adjustments? Uh, how's my energy level? How do I feel as far as, um, sleepiness and do I maybe need to sleep or take a break? Do I need something for my food, for energy? Do I need to drink water? There's so many ways that we can become more aware of our physical body. And again, it's, you would think, well, it's my body. I should know. But we do see that people have a, a range of how aware and how connected they are to their physical bodies, sensations, needs, and experiences. Other ways that we can better understand ourselves or get to know ourselves better is the things that we feel and experience, but also the patterns of ways that we do things. And so much of that is out of our awareness, not just the what of what I am feeling or what I'm doing, but the why. Why do I do things a certain way? Or why do I have relationships that are a certain way? We tend to think it's just, a byproduct of what's happening to us. There's the cliche of someone telling you, oh, every guy I date is a jerk or every woman I date is this way or that way and thinking it's just bad luck. And of course, there's going to be luck and things out of our control, but there's always going to be things that we are doing to be attracted to and to attract certain individuals in our lives. And we might think it's just a matter of luck, but there could be more to it in that we might be actually uh, affecting what is happening uh, as far as what we experience and who we end up experiencing our lives with. So I've seen it many times with clients where they think they know why they might be, you know, experiencing something is just luck or why all the men are the same way or all the women are the same way, Um, but there's much more that they are in control of. And it reminds me of the Carl Jung quote, Until you make the unconscious conscious, it will direct your life and you will call it fate. Until you make the unconscious conscious, it will direct your life and you will call it fate. So it can feel like luck that you keep dating the same types of people, but you might not realize that what feels like fate, your bad luck, might actually be more related to choices you're making. Um, And people will say, well, how would I have known on the first date that the person was this way. And this is this power of the unconscious that we are drawn towards things that we don't really know why. Uh, This is another way that we actually don't know ourselves as much as we think we do. And actually, if you ask someone why they like a certain song or why they like some food or why they like some person, at times we can assess really what it is that's drawing us to them, but often we are not aware of what it is that's drawing us to them. Why we like them is actually, at times, something we think we know or we're unaware of. And if we ask someone, they'll come up with reasons. And this goes back to what I was saying previously, that we're so good at rationalizing and coming up with reasons for why we think the things we do, why we do what we do, or why we even should do something that we would rather do. Uh, and this is another way that we do that. You know, so they go, oh, because they're so this way or they're so that way, and that's why I like them. What, a study that I thought was quite interesting along these lines was that they'd show men two pictures uh, of, of two different women, a picture of two different women, and say, which one are you more attracted to? They would pick one, and then put them face down and actually give them the other picture, the one that they didn't think was more attractive, and then ask them to explain why they thought this person was more attractive, and they always would come up with the reasons why. Oh, I like her eyes, or her smile looks very friendly. And so they would come up with reasons to justify something that they actually didn't believe, which shows how good we could be at even tricking ourselves, really the experimenters tricking them into tricking themselves, but we do it all the time in our lives in ways that are less contrived than that. So we think we might know why we like someone, but if we don't actually take a look and examine a little bit deeper, we might be missing uh, the unhealthy things that might be drawing us to this person. With my clients, at times, I'll actually have them explore this. If they've had a particularly troubling relationship with one or both of their parents, and if they've found a pattern that they keep getting attracted to, uh, an unhealthy characteristic or type of person, I'll have them reflect on this new person they're attracted to. Is there a way that they can see a connection to this past unhealthy attraction or this past unhealthy dynamic they have with their parents. And at times it will be hard to recognize it, especially early on, but sometimes they will become aware of, you know what, there is a way that they were being a bit arrogant. And so maybe that is reminding me of so-and-so, or there was a bit of like a tendency to control or an anxiety. I felt maybe there's something there. And so it's not going to be foolproof that we will be able to detect things exactly uh, as they are before it happens, but we can make ourselves more aware of why we might be doing what we're doing or why we might find ourselves in the same place again. Or maybe we don't think we're in the same place, but we might end up there if we're not careful. Uh, Another thing that comes up in these types of dynamics is this sense of someone being very familiar. You know, they feel like home. And of course, that could be such a nice feeling that you meet someone new and they feel like home to you. But this can be another one of those unhealthy attractions where remind reminding you of something painful about home or something unhealthy about home and your home environment that actually you want to go away from, not go towards. So if you feel like you've known someone longer than you actually have, and I'm not saying in every case, because I've felt this before, with people that actually, they made me feel like home, even as a friend in a way, because they were so comforting and loving. And so there's something home about that. But sometimes we're attracted to someone if we, uh, or we feel like we've known someone for a long time. It could be because they're bringing up these old feelings that aren't about them. But if we look at the root of where those feelings are coming from, we might see they're actually not from a good place. So someone reminding us from home, but if we had a dysfunctional home, that's not a good thing. And so it can allow us to, to reflect on that and realize that even though I'm feeling something that makes me feel comfortable with them, that comfort might be the painful comfort of your previous experiences. You might be attracted to them because they remind you of something that was unhealthy about your past, just like we might get attracted to a substance that makes us feel a certain way. Actually, it might be because it's something unhealthy for us. Um, Another way of looking at this concept of how do we know ourselves, again, there's a sense of, well, I know myself already. I know who I am, what I like, what I don't like, but really Each one of us is much more complex than we even think we are, just like this is something we often bring up when we're looking at uh, people in romantic relationships. We can have this tendency to fool ourselves into thinking our partner is so boring that, that we already know them, and we do this because we trade the passion that comes with not knowing with the stability of feeling like, I fully know you, so you're so predictable to me, I don't have to be anxious about it possibly losing you. But the truth is that your partner, even if you've known them for a long time is much more complex than you still know or can realize. And there will always be more to learn about them, even currently about them and their past and who they've been, but also who they will continue to be and who they can be. But similarly, the same concept applies to ourselves. So we like to stay in this comfort zone with our partner and think we know them fully. We also have that same sense with us. I'd like to know and be able to predict what I'm going to do and think and feel rather than actually give myself more space to even surprise myself in things I might like to do, or if I change things up, how it might benefit me. Or even to make it more simplified, let's say something like music. Uh, you know, I saw some, a meme or something like someone said, hey, can I send you some music recommendations? And the person said, no, I already know the songs that I like. And it's kind of funny, but it's also true that we sometimes feel that way. But how can we know we won't like certain songs until we've heard them? Or, of course, there's going to be songs that we've never heard of even types of music we've never heard of that we can't know until we've exposed ourselves to them You know if we like them or not. And people will differ on this tendency to enjoy new things, so openness to new experiences. This is a big personality trait that is often uh, included in in uh, personality measures, including uh, the ocean, uh, big five personality traits. Uh, How open are you to new experiences or open to things in general? Some people are more open, some are more closed off. And to me, this makes sense that it's on a spectrum because there's benefits to both. Of course, being open to new things can be good. To try new things, there might be something better out there. You can also combine things and creativity and do things that can make things better if you're open, but also there can be a benefit at times staying with things that you know are tried and true, and there's always going to be a balancing act that we have as individuals and even a society of figuring out how to, to find the balance between openness and also consistency or doing things the same way. But looking at ourselves as individuals, most of us, I think, are not allowing ourselves to express more aspects of ourselves or to try different things. Uh, Let me see how I do when I try something new, if I break my routine or if I um, try a new activity. And of course, when we try new things, yes, some people are more open to begin with and they might have an easier time taking things in, but there is something in psychology. It was in uh, the book that I, I read, How Do We Know Ourselves? The mere exposure effect, that when something is new, Even if it's maybe pleasant, usually we won't have such a pleasant reaction to it. But if we're exposed to it more, just that exposure will make us feel better about that thing. That's just a general psychological type of finding. But when it comes to trying something new, let's say a new type of food or a new type of music, more than likely, even if it could be something that you would like the first time you experience it, you won't like it very much. Even i felt this with many songs. You hear a song the first time, sometimes you're kind of like it, but then you hear it 10 times, 20 times, and you might start to really like it and you love it. It can be related to so many things, the mere exposure effect. Also, you could predict what's going to happen more. You can get into it in a different way. But that same song, the song didn't change, but your feeling about that song has changed because of that mere exposure, and now you have this chance to create more of a relationship or connection with it. So when I think of any of us, I also recognize that We think we know ourselves, but often it's a way that we've closed off so many avenues because it feels safer to think, I know me and this is the things I like and I know the things I don't like, and let me just keep it this way rather than actually challenging it and getting to know myself better and getting to know different aspects of myself. And so this is why when we talk about how you never fully know your partner, sometimes you'll hear that people say, you don't even ever fully know yourself, and I completely agree with this. You'll never know someone else for sure because even you who are within your own head and experiencing your own life, you don't even know yourself completely. And so uh, as a joke, I could think you can think of it as romancing yourself, that being open to new experiences with yourself and trying new things and and allowing yourself to explore different things to see really what else you do like or surprising yourself in in ways that you maybe think you already know yourself, but actually turns out there's more to you And even you'd like to see, because it's always going to be a little bit harder to keep ourselves open in that way. But think about all the things you might be missing out on. So when it comes to better knowing ourselves, the first step, as I mentioned, is having that attention, that awareness, and even that awareness that we don't fully know ourselves. And then there's things we can do to try to explore ourselves and uh, better just to know ourselves now, but also give ourselves experiences or chances to try different things and through those actions and our reactions might learn more about ourselves that way as well. All right, let's go to another commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. In the previous segment, I talked about romancing ourselves a little bit. And to continue that theme, I wanted to talk about self-love. Maybe that sounds a little bit inappropriate, but how we care about ourselves or love ourselves. And Coming back to the book, um, How Do We Know Ourselves, by David G. Myers, um, he quotes Carl Rogers, who is a humanistic psychologist, and he had said that although in religion he disagrees with this notion that humanity's problems come from excessive self-love, or what you might call pride. Um, He said that instead his experience showed that people, quote, despise themselves, regard themselves as worthless and unlovable. And then in this chapter or this section of the book, um, Dr. Myers goes on to share the ways that we actually think better of ourselves. This actually is what I was talking about, how we tend to see ourselves as better than average drivers, that we are more competent than other people in our profession, that we are more ethical and virtuous, are attractive. all sorts of different studies have found these different um, attributes that we tend to think very highly of ourselves about. And so his conclusion seems to be against what Carl Rogers thought, that it's about too much, uh, not loving ourselves enough, but that actually that's not an issue that we we love ourselves, if anything, too much, or we see ourselves too favorably. And I I think I'm more on the side of Carl Rogers, but I do think this, this uh, topic is, is quite complicated because often how people think of things like self-love or self-esteem, to me, doesn't quite capture what's important or I might disagree with the types of conceptualization and that could affect the arguments or the conversations that we have. So one thing I've seen a lot is this um, notion about self-esteem. And in the 80s and 90s, I think there was this big movement about self-esteem and having children have more self-esteem. So making programs in schools and making it part of education where we emphasize and improve the children's self-esteem. And often people say those types of interventions backfired, if anything, uh, and made people feel too good about themselves or put themselves above other people. And I think that might be true because I think even there, the way that self-esteem was conceptualized or what they were trying to promote was not what I would consider as a healthy type of self-esteem. So sometimes people think to have self-esteem means to think I'm amazing and I'm so good and I'm better than other people and I deserve special treatment and I deserve to be seen a certain way. And that to me is not what a genuine healthy self-esteem looks like at all. Um, That is a type of inflated sense of self or ego that is not healthy and not conducive to having a good relationship with yourself or other people. But often that's what people think they should be striving towards or that's what they think they should be uh, trying to instill in their kids to think that you're so special. And what I actually think is, We should actually encourage kids to see themselves as special, but also to see everyone else as special too, to value others as well. So to me, a healthy self-esteem and sense of self is that I am valuable, I am good, I deserve to have my needs met and to be taken care of, but also so does everyone else. Others also are good and valuable and lovable and deserve to have their needs met. So I'm not more special than others. I'm not above other people. I am just a person and all people have value and should be valued. That to me is the healthy self-esteem we should be looking for. But what I often find is that there is a a hole there. So people don't have this sense of themselves being valuable in this good way. And so they instead go to this unhealthy place of I'm better than others. I'm, you know, more valuable or special. Even if I did something wrong, somehow it's good. And so they vacillate sometimes more consistently on one end or the other between these two unhealthy uh, sides of either I'm better than others, I'm worse than others. I'm worthless and unlovable because of how I am, or actually I am better than others and people should look at me a certain way or treat me a certain way. I also think this is why when you ask people sometimes to to go to a past life or to think of themselves in a past life or to actually think they're exploring their past life. We so often see people say, oh, I was a king or I was Cleopatra or I was some royalty because we have this fear of being insignificant, of not being enough, and we want to somehow connect ourselves to something bigger or larger or what we might do with things like our race or our cultural or ethnic background, thinking we have to put others down to put ourselves up, because that's what's important, is to put ourselves above other people, then that is good. But I think it's because something is lacking the actual value of myself. Um, this goes back to the book on humility that I read a few, I think now months ago, where I really liked the definition of humility. It wasn't the sense of putting myself down below others, which we sometimes associate with humility, but it was actually seeing myself as the right size. Or seeing myself accurately, that is what true humility is. I don't think I'm worse than I am. I don't think I'm worse than I am. Uh, better than I am. I think I am just what I am, and also see my value as equal to others. I'm not worth more or more valuable or worth less than other people. But I actually do agree with Carl Rogers that people do have a hole there that actually leads them to see themselves as somehow unlovable or have such a fear of being unlovable, that they're searching for ways of giving themselves value through certain types of validation or certain type of performance and make sure that they are okay or they are going to be okay. So, I don't think we tend to overvalue ourselves, or I think we might, but I think it's actually becoming or it's coming from not having enough value um, within ourselves of seeing who we are or giving ourselves that credit. And actually, when we look at what parents often do, as I was saying, the self-esteem interventions might have done this, but parents also are doing this, where they're telling their kids they are special, or even if they do something wrong, it's okay. And actually, in a chapter on narcissism, uh, David Myers talks about this, how this leads to children having more narcissistic types of ways of thinking, of seeing themselves as better, better than other people, as as feeling less remorse for what they do wrong and guilt for what they do wrong because, well, hey, I'm special. My parents told me I'm special and, even you know, when I did something wrong, they said it's okay. And I have seen this firsthand with uh, parents, the ways they're talking to their kids and whether it's in therapy or talking about how they talk to their kids and often feeling quite proud about it that, oh, you know, my son did this thing and it was really wrong. And I said, it's okay. It doesn't matter because you're you. So go tell your school that, you know, you're, you did this, but it doesn't matter. You still deserve X, Y, and Z. And to me, this is quite unhealthy to teach our kids these things, that they are somehow immune to doing wrong things or the consequences of doing wrong things. And to me, it's coming from another uh, extreme or polar opposite issue that we deal with in the sense that when we find something is unhealthy, the reaction is often to go to the other extreme and to think that is something healthy. So, for example, if um, it's too cold, what we actually need is to make the place warm, but what people tend to do is they go to the other extreme, let's get so far away from cold that they make it too hot. So, here what we find is that many individuals have experienced parents who put them down and made them say you were worse than others, you're worthless, you're ugly, you're these horrible things in an emotionally abusive type of experience. And so that feels horrible, whether you experience it yourself or you've seen it or heard it about others. And so what the reaction to be is to think that, okay, what's healthy is to go to the other extreme. No, no, it's not that you're below others. You're better than everyone. You are so special and we put you on a pedestal. And so unfortunately we think that, the reaction to something unhealthy or if we want to go away from something unhealthy, we have to go to the other extreme, not realizing that's something else unhealthy. So again, if it's too cold, if you now try to get so far away from cold, it gets too hot, that's also going to be uncomfortable. If someone is thirsty, that's not good, that lack of water, but then if you drown them, that's not good either. You need to give them some water, a moderate amount that will make them feel good. So as parents, We have to be very aware of how we talk to our kids about who they are and how we value them. Of course, we don't want to make them feel bad about themselves, put them down. That would not be good. But we have to be careful that just because something sounds positive, you're amazing, you're special, you're the best, that's not healthy either. That's actually going to hurt them. And often, as this happens in many different ways, what we are lacking in ourselves or what we didn't get, we then think we're going to fix in our kids, but again, we do it in an unhealthy way. So we might be feeling insignificant, or we might be wanting more recognition or to be seen a certain way. And so because of that, we say, I want my kids to not feel that way, and we push the opposite. We make them um, think they're too good or better than themselves, and that's not healthy for their own experience. One, they won't face the world in a realistic way of the consequences of their own actions. And two, People who have are high on narcissism are not good people to be in relationships with, even in work relationships, but especially in things like friendships and even more in romantic relationships, because in order to be in a healthier, the healthiest type of romantic relationship, it needs to be one where both people are valued equally by both people. I value you as much as I value myself in this relationship and vice versa. And if anything, I'm even gonna be more concerned with you than making sure you're okay because you're the person that I'm here to take care of in this relationship. So I'll be even more mindful of you. Because one of the things that our disadvantage here is that I am experiencing me. And I did say that we don't necessarily know ourselves uh, as well as you might think we do. But nonetheless, I am experiencing my experience and you're experiencing your experience, whoever you are at this moment listening. And I can only experience that and you can only experience you. We can share, we can have an empathy, we can understand each other better, but we're always gonna be more focused on our own experience. And this is why we tend to think, oh, what I went through was much worse than other people because you felt it, whereas you didn't feel the experience of other people. So when we're in relationships, this type of narcissism can make this get even worse, where we feel something that we're going through and we think this is so much worse than what other people are going through because look what it feels like. And so people with narcissism and who, might have a temper, might get angry and think, look how angry you made me. It's your fault that I'm just angry. Look what I'm feeling, rather than in some ways seeing themselves responsible for the anger or at least responsible for how they choose to respond or react to that anger. So coming back to this initial topic of self-esteem, I do think, or self-love, I do think that there is a lack, or in general most people need more of a genuine self-love. That that is missing in most people. And yes, pride is bad, but pride comes from this sense of people overvaluing themselves when it's this false type of pride. But a genuine pride is actually good, noticing and recognizing my own strength and goodness. Just like if I do something good, of course, I don't want to be overly prideful of it, but it would be wrong for me to think of it as equal as doing something not good. So if I, let's say, along with other people, we go, Serve some food to people who are in need. Now, if I make myself, oh, look how amazing I am and put myself above other people, that's not good. But in looking at myself and comparing myself to other actions, if I didn't do that thing or if I did something else that day, it would be wrong of me to think that those two things are equal, to not have more pride in doing the more generous and altruistic action. So it would be good actually for me in an authentic way and to be appropriately and accurately looking at my life to have some pride in a genuine way for things that i do and i might have remorse or guilt or feel bad about other things that i do or if i don't do certain things so in that way i think it's actually wrong of us to think of pride as a bad thing it's that yes anything in extremes is going to be unhealthy but i do think that self-love in a genuine way is something that many of us and almost all of us are lacking or don't have in the right. Type of balance of seeing my value and seeing my worth, but also seeing the value and worth of others, having this balance of self-love and love for others as well. All right, let's go to another commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Another aspect when it comes to knowing ourselves is our memory and Memory is this amazing thing. Of course, it allows for us to do so much. It also allows for us to have relationships, because our relationships are related to the memories, even if we're not conscious of them, but how we feel about someone. But what we know about memory based on research in the field of psychology is that although the, it is incredible what we can remember and that we have this ability to remember, our memories are also quite fallible. I mean, they are not perfect and they are rather imperfect, and there's so much that we see that is that we get wrong when it comes to our memory. Um, one example of this, or one way we can exemplify this in my mind is, if you're listening, if you're not driving, you can close your eyes and try to imagine a map of the United States, or if you're not American, some other area that you no, or you know you live in. So imagine a map of that area. And so if you're imagining it, let's say if you see the whole thing, of course you are somehow probably approximating the shape of what it is, but we know, we can pretty confident, you're not getting it all right. Maybe even the general shape might not be right, but especially all the small little indentation that would show up on a map, there's no way you're going to get those all right. But somehow you're seeing something. Some image is there in your mind. And actually, our perception is quite this way, too. That could be its own conversation that we think we're seeing the world as it is, but so much of it is our mind filling in, our brain filling in the gaps. But our memory also can be seen in this way, that you can bring something up, and it might seem very real, it might seem like a complete picture, but the accuracy of that memory is something that you want to be very aware of, that it actually probably isn't as accurate as you might think it is. And because it's in vivid detail at times, it makes us think it's so accurate, but that doesn't actually mean the vividness or how clear it might seem to us is an indicator of how reliable or how accurate it is. Um, If you imagine, for example, September 11th, I mentioned it earlier in another example from the book, but if you imagine, okay, where were you September 11th, 2001? how did you hear the news and all the different details and all of you listening, um, I can't be sure that all of you are going to be wrong, but even if there's more than a few of you listening, I can be very certain that at least some of you will be wrong in some of the major details, definitely some of the minor details of what happened on that day, as far as your experience. Now it might seem like you might have that same thought that we often have hearing about psychology experiments that no, not me. I'm sure many people might have a hard time remembering certain things, but uh, I'm not one of those people. I'm not gonna be someone who is misremembering what happened. I'm gonna be remembering it accurately. I'm gonna know what is going on. But we have to be, again, having that intellectual humility and realize that when these studies show that almost everyone is gonna misremember definitely some details, maybe some larger things, that. Even though it feels so real to you, what you are remembering, it is not the case that it's going to be accurate, that there are so many studies that are showing us this. So it can be quite surprising to people because we feel so confident about our memories because they feel so real. And why might that be? Well, just like I was demonstrating with that map analogy, when you remember a memory, Yes, it'll be images that will come back, let's say, maybe even like in a video type of format. You might remember some parts of it to my Zoom. Remember snapshots. But that will also elicit feelings. And the feelings feel very real. And they are. They're very real about what you're feeling in that moment as you recollect whatever it is you're trying to remember. But it doesn't necessarily mean that it's an exact match of what happened when you experienced the memory or whatever it is that you were Trying to remember. But right now, you can think about September 11th and be like, oh, yes, I remember this. I was nervous or anxious, or I was worried about someone or something related to it. And those feelings will feel very real. And so, because of that, that'll lead you to feel that this must be an accurate thing because look how strongly I'm feeling that. But the truth is, it doesn't mean it necessarily is going to be a precise match or it could be quite different from what you were experiencing on that day or in that moment. And that's what makes it so hard for us to reconcile this, that how can something that feels so real, something that feels so real, not be real or not be true? But again, this is the this sense of this reproductive or reconstructive process of memory, that each time we bring about a memory to mind, we are recreating something. There's a reconstructive process there. And this is a, a quote I remember Uh, and I've seen it several times before, that memory is a reconstructive process. So I tell you, oh, uh, what happened two weeks ago on Sunday? What were you doing? And you have to bring up that memory. And in doing so, you are recreating it. And in a way, we can be amazed at how accurate it is, the things you might be able to recall, but also we might notice that there will be many holes in what you remember that you might actually find some things there that aren't quite what actually happened. Even when they do some studies where they'll show people, let's say, videos of showing them how they were wrong, they still have a hard time comprehending that actually they were wrong in what they remember, so much so they might think that the video is doctored or that there's something going on because there's no way what they're remembering isn't accurate. But just the truth is, our memories are fallible, things that might seem very much to be true in our memories don't necessarily reflect the reality of, of what happened. Or when they've done studies uh, where they ask people, where were you on 9 and then ask them to write, let's say a year later, where they were. And when it mismatches, people have a hard time believing that that was actually their writing, that they actually wrote something different. It could be quite hard for them to, to fathom that. So this is another aspect of knowing ourselves and actually a challenge that we have, and that what we feel very certain that we know, we might not even be so sure of, or what we might be so certain we remember accurately, we might not remember quite so accurately. It's the best that we have, and it's actually quite good, but it's definitely far from perfect. And thinking about how it's far from perfect, uh, in the book Psych by Paul Bloom, this theme came up and in ways it comes up in this book, How Do We Know Ourselves, by David G. Myers, we might as well hear about these ways that we get things wrong, um, you know, fallacies that we have in ways that we believe things, heuristics that we use that make mistakes and sometimes our gut feelings or reactions we have to certain things. And it could lead to this conclusion like, oh, look how stupid people are, or look how weak we are. And that is one interpretation or one side of the coin. But I think actually a fuller picture also has to account for how amazing it is that we And do the things right so often. So sometimes we'll see things like a miscommunication and can make this thing, oh, look how bad we are at communicating. But it can also bring to mind how often we get things right, how incredible it is that I can have a thought or idea in my mind, even that's what I'm doing on the show, having a thought or idea in my mind and trying to convey that to you, the listener. Now, of course, there's going to be many ways that the steps can get, uh, the communication can break down or get interrupted. First, even within my own head, I might have a hard time accurately getting the thought, then putting it into words. Then what I actually articulate might miss some parts. And then what you hear, how much you pay attention to it, that's going to be something. And then how you comprehend it could be up to your own interpretation and other things that you will do to it, so it's not gonna be some perfect representation of what I have in my mind with all those steps along the way, but still it could be quite remarkable when to consider that by me adjusting the airwaves or the pressure of waves uh, with my mouth and vocal cords, you are then able to take something in and have an understanding of what I might be thinking at some level, albeit not perfect, but still to me that's quite remarkable. So often when I see these studies that find the ways that we get things wrong, and I think that's very important because having that intellectual humility uh, also means having that humility of recognizing that as humans we are uh, not foolproof. We're often fools. We make mistakes, and that's okay. And the more we're open to understanding that, the more we can at times counteract those mistakes. If we know, for example, we have a tendency to over-rely on our memory or be so certain that it's right, that can allow us to question it at times that, okay, maybe I'm not so sure. So if someone disagrees with us, um, it doesn't mean necessarily they're trying to lie or manipulate to us. They might actually be having a different memory of the same event. This is something that happens all the time in family or couples therapy where um, individuals will share the same argument that they had, but have very different recollections and memories of what happened no, you said this first, no, you said that, I never said that, or you said it this way, or you yelled, I didn't yell. And really often, not to make it like a, a court case where, you know, the prosecution gives their case and then defense rebuts, but when we discuss arguments in therapy, often you will have both people share their experience of it, not because either one of them is known to be lying or to be, uh, untruthful, but that we know that their experience will be different just because there are two different people, although experiencing the same event, they will experience it or remember it quite differently. And we even see this in eyewitness testimony. Two people will see the same thing and remember very different accounts of what happened and both be very certain that they are right. Again, this feeling we can have that they we're so confident because the memory comes back with all this feeling, but it doesn't necessarily reflect that the memory is itself accurate. So there's ways that we get these things wrong all the time, but that doesn't take away from the remarkable abilities that we do have. So to me, it's always worth recognizing both sides of that. Um, And yes, the more we do recognize those shortcomings, we can even overcome them and possibly counteract them, both in an individual level, but also in a more group or societal or cultural level. So for example, uh, looking at the fact that our memories can be fallible, we can make mistakes, we see that eyewitness testimony in court cases is being looked at differently, that often people had been put in jail before from one eyewitness identifying them or identifying some aspect of a crime or crime scene, and someone might be imprisoned based on that alone. But that is becoming less common because we recognize that often eyewitness testimony can be wrong. And there's lots of factors looking at the procedure of how police and investigators gather information and the way the questions are done, which itself is um, the source of many chapters and books. But leaving it there just for now, we can understand that when we see the weaknesses or the ways that we as humans can be fallible, can help us try to get things more right. Yeah, we get it wrong sometimes, but it's amazing that even in trying to understand ourselves and our brains and how it gets it wrong, we can use those same brains to try to get things more right. Um, but again, I do think it's worth mentioning that when we see these studies and think of how stupid we are or how do we get things wrong, I do think it's a reminder for me of also recognizing how often we get things right and how truly remarkable that is as well. So your memory isn't perfect, no one is, but that's okay. Uh, it still does a pretty amazing job of allowing us to, to live our lives and to live them quite well. All right, let's go into our last commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. On today's show, I was starting with the book, How Do We Know Ourselves? by David G. Myers, and many of the topics after that were related to this concept of knowing ourselves, understanding ourselves, In a previous segment talking about memory and how that is one aspect of knowing ourselves and the ways that it can get things right and not get things right. And I did allude to different reasons why it might be good to know yourself, but some of ask, well, what's, what's the point or why should I even want to get to know myself better? And uh, I can't force you to or force you to believe that it's the right thing to do, but I definitely think the more we know ourselves, there are better or there are a few positive consequences that will come about from that. To begin with, we can lead better lives for ourselves. The more I know my strengths and weaknesses, the more I know the patterns of things I'm doing, the more I could use those strengths to my advantage and be aware of those weaknesses, possibly change them, and also potentially change patterns that might be hurting me in my um, well-being and just meeting my goals and my desires. Another way related to relationships that knowing ourselves can be important is that, and this is the one I want to conclude today's show on, is that we can only get as close to others as we are with ourselves. Or to put it another way, you can only get as close to others as you are in touch with yourself. So if you are not in touch with yourself in a more deep way and related to yourself in a deep way, you can't connect to others in a deep way or it's going to be limited in how deeply you can connect with them. Let's look at how this might be. So even looking at particular emotions like sadness, So if I want to be there for other people in their experience of sadness, I can only connect with them or be with them as deeply as I've connected to my own experiences of sadness. This is part of why it is often found that individuals who have experienced depression can be more empathic. Now, this could be a type of chicken or the egg type of thing, or a correlation where it can go in both directions, people who are more empathic and emotional in that way might be more likely to get depressed. But another way to also look at this is that people who have experienced their own sadness, who have been in touch with that experience of a deep sadness within themselves, will be more capable to be there for someone else's sadness. Or if we think of empathy... I can only be as empathic or I can only express empathy for things I've at some level been able to experience or will let myself experience myself. But what we often find is that people who have a hard time tolerating their own sadness, who will run away from their own sadness and think of it as something bad that must be avoided, that must be ignored, or that must be erased as soon as it's experienced by Either distraction or doing something to feel good, those individuals will have a hard time tolerating the sadness of someone else. Because in order to feel your or to experience empathy or to be there for you in an empathic way, I have to feel sad in that moment too. There is some level of connection there. And so this is another balancing act when we're being there for someone emotionally. We, of course, will want to feel something and show them that we're feeling something, but we don't want to feel too much because that can get in the way of us being there empathically to support them and now making it about us. So, if you tell someone some bad news and they show no reaction, okay, you're not going to really feel much and that won't be very supportive. But if they feel too much, if now they start crying and breaking down, rather than it being about your sadness, you're probably gonna be more concerned with making sure they are okay. So there is a balancing act here of how we are there for someone. That if we wanna show empathy, there's some level of responding with some feelings, but we don't wanna be too extreme because then the person will feel that they can no longer be there, make it about their feelings, it becomes about us. This is actually one of the ways we talk about uh, a parentified child The child can feel from a young age if they're attuned to their parents' feelings that their parents are getting very emotional based on things or that they can't contain their own feelings, and so the child might unconsciously feel responsible to make sure that their parents are okay, and because of that, they'll start to disown or distance themselves from their own feelings because it doesn't feel safe or that there is the space and comfort to express their feelings. But so coming back to this notion of empathy, if I... I'm not comfortable with and in touch with my own sadness. I can't be there for you when you're sad because, as I was saying, when we're empathic, we feel something. And so, if your sadness makes me feel sad, if I'm there for you, then I'm going to get away from it. And so, we see this where people are like, oh, come on, why are you making this a big deal? We will put down the person or make them think that they're ungrateful. You should be happy about, you know, whatever it is in your life that's going on. Oh, you're upset with your husband or your wife. A lot of people aren't even married, so you should feel fortunate about it. Or, oh, some problem happened with your car or your house. Most people don't even have one. And there's some truth to those types of mindsets, but it doesn't take away the pain that you have. If you stub your toe and I tell you, oh, you're so lucky some people don't have toes or don't, you know, have the ability to feel, you probably will be pretty frustrated because in that moment you're feeling a lot of pain. So if I want to be there for someone else, and if anyone wants to be there for someone else in an emotional way, we need to have the ability to tolerate those own feelings in ourselves and to touch those own feelings in ourselves. It's like we're going to some new ground or going to a ground we've been to before, and we can go sit there with them on that ground. But if we've never been there or we don't want to go there, we can't actually allow ourselves to be there for them, to have that capacity. So that's one really big way that uh, knowing ourselves and being in touch with ourselves can allow us to be connected to other people. The more I've connected to my own feelings and can tolerate them and have a healthy relationship with them, the more I can provide emotional support to other people. But also when it comes to our relationships, what you'll find is that people who are more deeply connected to themselves, who want to explore who they are and why they are the way they are and look at their own histories and their own patterns, these individuals will tend to want to understand someone else in that same way. The deeper they've gone within themselves, the deeper they are wanting to go and willing to go with someone else. But on the other side, people who have only a shallow relationship with themselves, they won't feel the need or the desire uh, or even the, the uh, possibility of going deeper. They won't even know something is there. They'll just get to know someone and they connect. And so, as I said, I can't convince you that you have to want a deeper relationship or that has to be the right way. I do think that it creates the healthiest relationships, the most meaningful relationships, or put another way, the more emotionally intimate and close we are, the stronger the relationship can be. Uh, both in the sense of what we experience within it, but also the foundation that it creates with what it can take as far as uh, the stresses that happen from the outside and from within a relationship. The stronger that foundation, that emotional intimacy is, the more that relationship can withstand when it comes to what happens in life. So if the relationship is quite shallow, we can think of putting something in the sand or in the ground If not a lot happens, the relationship might end. And maybe the people won't feel so much if it ends, if they're not as close, but still they'll feel a lot and and the relationship won't be as strong, so it won't be able to last as much as compared to a relationship that has more of that emotional depth. And the way I look at it is that the relationship can only go to the level that both people have experienced that depth. So if we just imagine it in some kind of a uh, conceptual way, if you have one person who's very deeply connected with themselves in a very deep and meaningful way and someone who's at a very shallow level, the deeper one might pull them a little bit deeper. But at the beginning, you can only go as deep as that more shallow person in that experience of emotional depth within themselves. They can only go that deep over time, possibly being with someone who is more deeply connected or likes those things. They might pull that person for... Uh, encourage them to get more deeply connected and that might create new possibilities, but oftentimes we can't change others or we should definitely should not enter a relationship wanting to change the other person and there will be a limit to how deeply connected those two people can get or how deep that relationship can be. And so this brings up this theme of vulnerability and emotional intimacy. We all have a desire, or I think we all have this desire to feel fully accepted for who we are, to be fully seen as we are in a very clear and accurate and realistic way. And very importantly, to not get rejected for who we are and to be loved and accepted for who we are. And so this creates this type of a dilemma because the more vulnerable we are, the more open we are, It does definitely create the possibility for a closeness that feels very good and is that ultimate feeling of being loved and accepted. But the more we are exposed and vulnerable in that way, the more deeply we can get hurt. And this is why at times I'll talk about a fear of intimacy or a fear of getting close, but really I think it's actually that we all have it to a degree. It's just a varying degree because there is something that is risky about getting close. So understandably, It isn't something we just feel completely comfortable about or feel easy, because it is a feeling of risk. Now, based on what we've experienced in our childhood and what we've done in our own lives, we'll have a different level of that fear of getting close. How risky does it feel if we have felt a sense of rejection or felt that we were not supposed to be the way that we were? This goes back to this concept of self-love, if we don't have this healthy sense of self-love and self-esteem that I'm valuable and okay and right just the way I am or I can be the way I am and that's okay, uh, if we haven't gotten that, then it's going to feel or the expectation will be that the person we open up to won't love and accept us as we are. So this is why I do think this genuine self-love is so important because until I have that sense that I'm okay the way I am, doesn't mean I see myself as perfect or so special and better than other people, but see myself as lovable at a core level, it's going to be very scary for me if I don't have that to show my true self or be more authentic with someone that I'm interacting with because my sense is that when someone sees that, they will reject it or they will turn away from that. So we are all facing this dilemma that to experience the most beautiful thing we can within a relationship, to experience those depths of emotional intimacy, we have to be willing to risk and we have to be willing to be more vulnerable. And that's that dilemma that we are all trying to figure out in who we even choose as a partner. Sometimes we might actually choose someone that won't force us to go as deep. There could be something comforting in that. And we might even then be able to blame the other person for not going as deep. But really, it could be something that we ourselves desire because it's more comfortable that way. Uh, or we can choose someone that will allow for us to take those risks and of course um, it's not something we blindly do we choose someone that we feel that we can trust Trust is never a hundred percent or something we know for sure but it's something that we can take some level of a leap with a level of confidence that will never be hundred percent and that we'll feel confident in, and that's really what we do when we commit ourselves to one another is that we're knowing that it's not 100% or a guarantee, but we want to create this type of stable bond and stable relationship where we will work towards creating that type of closeness with one another. So it's kind of like climbing a mountain. I know I talk about depths, but it really works both ways where the higher up the mountain you go, the further you can fall and the more you can get hurt if you do fall, and that can be quite scary. And if you stay lower, then you don't really risk injury. But if you risk going higher with the right companion, it is possible that if you get there and go there together, you will then get to enjoy this incredible view. You will get to experience some type of beauty that can't be experienced at those lower levels. So I always encourage others and myself included to take those risks to uh, go to those heights of emotional intimacy and closeness to potentially experience that beauty and to not settle for the lower views that might feel safer but won't be as beautiful. All right, that brings us to the end of today's show. A big thank you to Fahuda who's in the studio. I've actually still been unable to get to L.A. Many people have had their flights canceled, and I'm part of that, so thank you to Fahuda who has allowed the show to go smoothly today. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fahid Alakwi, Zan Zendegi, Azadi.